Thank you, Pastor Bruce. Let's please stand as we prepare to read from God's Word this morning. Please stand and please open your Bibles. Uh, we're going to open them to Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles in the pew in front of you, so feel free to grab one as well. Behind me is the exact page in that Bible where this passage is found. Again, follow along as I read Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Again, this morning as Pastor Bruce begins a new series. In fact, you can see the posters on the sides of the sanctuary here. Upside Down, the Beatitudes, a great series that we'll start this morning. So again, follow along as I read Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. And sing the multitudes... He went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Please bow your heads and pray with me, please, this morning. Father in heaven, we come worshiping you, we come praising you, thanking you for who you are. You are our God who has given us your son Jesus, who is the truth, the way, and the life in which we can approach you all the time, Father. How we thank you through your son Jesus. We ask you to speak to us this morning as we see what you, Jesus, spoke to many about these Beatitudes. Help us to understand this message, and may our lives be changed by your word through the power of your spirit. Thank you, Father, for bringing us all here this morning. Nothing accidental, Father, about being in your sanctuary this morning. Speak to us through Pastor Bruce and guide him. May your spirit be upon him, and may we have ears that hear and a heart that's willing to apply what you have for us. In your name we thank you. Amen. Well, this morning we're starting a new series on the Beatitudes that we're calling simply Upside Down, and uh, in which Jesus takes the culture's views of a blessed life and, and he turns them upside down. It's been said that the quest to attain a state of blessedness is a universal human longing. And the truth of the matter is, we we all pursue what we think will bring blessing in our lives. Not that that's wrong to pursue a blessed life. It's not. In fact, the Bible speaks about human blessedness and differentiates ways that lead to a blessed life and ways that lead away from a blessed life. After all, the very first word of, of Jesus' sermon here in Matthew 5 
in which Randy read for us, is the word blessed, which would have guaranteed the immediate attention of his hearers that day on the side of a mountain. But how would you define a blessed life? What would it take for you to consider yourself blessed? Well, there's, there's a little... Uh, project we can do for to help you kind of figure that out, and, and the answer is often found in our if-only list, such as, notice this in your notes coming up on the screen, if only I were, and you fill in the blank, then life would be good. If only I had blank, then I'd be happy. If only I could blank, then I'd have it made. And most of the time, whatever we fill in that blank, that is our if-only, we think, would lead to a blessed life. That would be our definition, our idea. Our if-onlys tend to tell us what we really think, what we really believe about what it means to be blessed. But here's the problem. Most of our if-onlys never lead to a blessed life that ultimately satisfies us. We live in America. We in America claim to know all about the pursuit of a blessed life, or, or what the Declaration of Independence refers to as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You got it. In fact, Benjamin Franklin, it's, it's ironic, he made this insightful comment. He said, please note that the Declaration only gives people the right to pursue happiness. You have to catch it yourself. The trouble is that sometimes we think we've caught happiness by the collar, but over time it doesn't measure up. It doesn't deliver what we thought it would. In New York City, how many have been to New York City? All right, several of you, great. In New York City, there are at least, I bet you didn't know this fact, 8 million cats and counting. As most of you know, the city is basically concrete and steel, and so when those who live there have a pet, such as a cat that dies, they can't just go out into the backyard and bury it. And the city, after all the charges, get this, a fee of $50 to remove your dead animal for you. Well, one enterprising woman thought to herself, well, maybe I can make some money by providing a service to people in the city and save them some money at the same time. And, and so she had this idea, and she placed an ad in the newspaper that simply said, when your pet dies, I'll take care of it for you for only $25. Well, since this was half the price of the city fee, you can imagine phone calls began to just come in. But here's how the business actually worked. The woman would go to the local Salvation Army thrift store and buy an old suitcase for two or three bucks. When someone called for her services, she went to the home and she carefully placed the cat in a suitcase. Not alive, a dead cat. And she would then take a ride on the subway in the early evening, a perfect time for pickpockets and thieves, and placed the suitcase near the door of the subway car. Almost always a thief would come by when the doors open and steal the suitcase and run out. And she would yell, stop, thief, to no avail. But what a surprise for the thief. The truth is, millions of people are running after a suitcase thought to hold the key to a blessed life. But when open, the contents never quite deliver what is expected. 
British writer Malcolm Muggeridge makes the same point when he says, happiness is like a young deer, fleet and beautiful. Hunt him and he becomes a poor, frantic quarry after the kill a piece of stinking flesh. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came on the scene and, and He turned the prevailing view of a blessed life upside down in what is commonly known as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, that word is, is simply, it's the Latin word for blessing or blessed. But before we start looking and diving in to Jesus' radical views of a blessed life, let's first look at our culture's view of a blessed life. Notice this in your notes with me. Number one, our culture's view of a blessed life is centered on one's abundance. It is centered on one's abundance. The voices of our culture tell us a blessed life is all about having abundance. Whether that's an abundance of wealth, beauty, success, power, prestige, pleasure, fame, and the like. Our culture preaches a message that says, the more I have, the happier I'll be. But as we'll see in a moment, Jesus turns that view upside down. For now, just think of Iron Man. How many have seen the movie Iron Man? Tony Stark, who was Iron Man in the movie. Tony Stark is the epitome of our culture's view of a blessed life. He's incredibly smart. He's incredibly a successful businessman. He is incredibly wealthy with the fastest cars, biggest house, nicest clothes, and coolest toys. He is incredibly famous and powerful, and oh, is he confident. He does whatever he wants, whenever he wants to do it. And did I tell you, he can fly? I mean, how cool is that? Tony Stark is seriously blessed in the eyes of our culture. But before Tony Stark, there was King Solomon, who was the most mag magnificent king who ever lived. Listen, if anybody should have been happy according to the world standards of a blessed life, King Solomon should have been happy. Under Solomon's reign, the nation of Israel reached the apex of prosperity and power and prestige. Solomon was a man with unparalleled wealth and success and pleasure. In fact, his wealth was so vast that the Bible says his silver was as common as rocks. He had buildings, he had servants and vineyards and thousands of the finest horses in the world. His pleasure was fabulous feud food, and beautiful women by the hundreds. In fact, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines at his disposal. Reflecting back now on that life, what the world considers a blessed life, reflecting on this life, Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1, and he says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good or to find out what is happiness. And what did Solomon find out? Oh, he tells us. In his own words, he writes in Chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, verses 10 and 11, he says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. 
I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. And so basically Solomon's conclusion is, I tried it all. I tried everything this world had to offer and I found three dead ends in my search for happiness. And they're the same dead ends today. Notice this in your notes coming up on the screen. Those three dead ends are this. It's accumulating things, experiencing pleasures, and achieving success. Solomon says, I tried those things, and they were dead ends. Some 3,000 later, the longing for happiness is just as intense, and the goal is just as elusive. You say, why is happiness so elusive? Well, one clue is, is found in the etymology or the origin of the very word. Happiness, like the word haphazard, is based on the old Middle English word, hap, which means chance or luck. In other words, happiness is circumstantial. It depends on what happens. We're happy if certain things happen to us, and if they don't happen, then our happiness vanishes like the wind. As one commentator once said, human happiness is something that is dependent on the chances and changes of life, something which life may give and which life may also destroy. But there's another more prominent reason why happiness is so elusive, and that is by and large, people are looking for it in the wrong places. People are trying to find an inner satisfaction with external things while ignoring the only one who can meet their need. C.S. Lewis put it this way. We try to be our own masters as if we had created ourselves. Then we hopelessly strive to invent some sort of happiness for ourselves outside of God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come human history, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God to make him happy. King Solomon is a tragic example of what C.S. Lewis writes. But from our culture's perspective, Solomon's so-called blessed life of indescribable wealth, incredible power, and the means to satisfy all his carnal desires should have made him supremely happy. And yet, he summed it all up in one word. Meaningless. Some of your translations may even say vanity, which is just another way of saying emptiness. He writes in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 17, so I hated life. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And Solomon's life illustrates the relevance now of the question that Jesus asked when he came on the scene in the Gospels here in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Jesus tells us. He tells us in Luke chapter 12 and verse 15 that a person's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he or she possesses. This is why if you're looking for happiness in the world's things, you're looking in the wrong place. 
As the great Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, things of this world will no more keep out trouble of spirit than a piece of paper will stop a bullet. And so the deepest longings of the human soul can be met only by God Himself. And so when Jesus came into the world, He was not offering the world stuff. What Jesus is saying in these Beatitudes is simply this, you will never find happiness in this world. Never. It's like one of us trying to hit a Wade Davis fastball or slider tonight in the opening game of the Royals season. It's never going to happen. Who here is going to hit a Wade Davis fastball? And so our culture's view of a blessed life is centered on one's abundance, which ultimately never satisfies your soul, and it leaves you feeling empty inside. So what then is Jesus' view of a blessed life? Well, notice this. Point number two. Jesus' view of a blessed life is centered on God's approval. It's centered on God's approval. You may even write the word favor on God's favor. Either one is true. It is centered on God's approval or God's favor. What's interesting, in the Beatitudes, nine times in these nine verses, Jesus will use this word, blessed. Blessed. He begins each verse, as you notice when Randy read it for us, blessed, blessed, blessed. Nine times he says that. And so what does that word mean? Well, the concept of blessing, it's interesting, goes all the way back to the New Old Testament. In fact, you can get an idea, begin to get a flavor of what it means to be blessed in the book of Numbers 6, verses 22 through 27, when it says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons, This is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. So they will put My name on the Israelites and I will bless them. That the Lord makes His face shine on someone and actually turn His face toward someone speaks to the accepting, approving smile of God on that person. And the Beatitudes here bear that out as well when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 in verse 3 here, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus speaks of blessing here in terms of having something. He says it's, it's, it's in terms of blessing, in terms of having the kingdom of heaven which is another way of saying the kingdom of God. And so to have now the kingdom of God is first and foremost to know the king in that kingdom and to have the king's approval or favor on your life. This is the primary meaning of blessed. It is to be graciously approved or favored by God himself. Although the Greek word here that Jesus uses for blessed is sometimes translated as happy, 
This is a poor translation. One reason why is because we actually don't have an equivalent English word for the Greek word that's actually used. And so different translators try to come up with different words to capture the idea of what blessed means. But all of our English words are somewhat inadequate. It is true, though, that the blessed are genuinely happy at times. But blessedness cannot be reduced to happiness since happiness is primarily a feeling that, that comes and goes. Jesus is not promising the poor in spirit will feel happy. No, no, no. He is promising something much greater than that. He is promising them the approval or favor of God. Ed Welch says that the blessed are honored. Their status is enviable. They are obvious recipients of divine approval and favor. Replace blessed are with how honorable are, and you will see what I mean. One author and pastor summarizes it this way. Jesus is not declaring how people feel. Rather, he is making an objective statement about what God thinks of them. Blessed is a positive judgment by God on the individual that means to be approved or to find approval. So when God blesses us, he approves us. And yes, such approval, let me tell you, will certainly result in a sense of joy in our hearts, a sense of happiness even. But a blessed life is primarily a life that is approved or favored by God. Or as Max Licato puts it, it is a life that receives the applause of heaven. And so the poor in spirit are blessed because they have the approval of King Jesus. This leads to a joy that far surpasses the momentary happiness of all the sex, money, fame, beauty, and power of this world. The approval of the King King Jesus is far more satisfying than the approval of family and friends, bosses and co-workers, teachers and coaches. God is not a cosmic killjoy. No, no, no. He wants his children to be blessed. He wants us to experience joy and satisfaction in our lives now here on this earth. And he knows that this will not come from having abundance in the world, but from having approval from the king. In the Beatitudes, Jesus is declaring something. He's declaring emphatically that our culture's values have been turned upside down because he has now come. As he said earlier, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, I am here. And he has intervened into history. We could summarize the Beatitudes this way. If you want to fill in your notes, you're coming up on the screen. The Beatitudes are Jesus upside-down views on a blessed life. Jesus is going to blow people's minds with the Beatitudes. He blew their minds back in that first century, just as he is blowing minds still today in the 21st century with these Beatitudes. He is blowing people's minds because they are 
it is an upside-down view of a blessed life. Look again what Jesus says. Look at these Beatitudes one more time with me. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And perhaps you're thinking to yourself about now, you've got to be kidding. These people sound like they're losers, not winners. Well, that's because we are so caught up with our culture's view of a blessed life, which is completely at odds with what Jesus is saying here in the Beatitudes. You see, to most people, the Beatitudes seem obscure seem absurd. They seem even ridiculous. One writer said it this way. It's as if Jesus crept into the display window of life and he changed all the price tags. It's all backwards. You see, if our culture wrote the Beatitudes, how do you think they would write them? Well, one author took a stab at it. Here's what it might say. Blessed are the entitled, for they grab what they want. Blessed are the carefree, for they shall be comfortable. Blessed are the pushy, for they shall win. Blessed are the greedy, for they shall climb the food chain. Blessed are the vengeful, for they shall be feared. Blessed are those who don't get caught, for they shall look good. Blessed are the argumentative, for they shall get in the last word. Blessed are those who have the best resumes, for this world lies at their feet. Isn't that our world's view of a blessed life? But Jesus comes along, and he turns that upside down. N.T. Wright put it this way, the Beatitudes are a summons to live in the present in a way that will make sense in God's promised future because that future has arrived in the present in Jesus of Nazareth. It may seem upside down, but we are called to believe with great daring that it is, in fact, the right way up. As R.W. Glenn writes, Jesus uses counterintuitive gospel logic to show us that life in the kingdom of God is completely contrary to what we expect. In other words, kingdom blessing looks like the opposite of everything our culture values. So let me give you three statements of a blessed life from God's kingdom perspective. A blessed life, number one, is independent of circumstances. It's independent of circumstances. The circumstances of the people who heard Jesus declare these beatitudes, let me tell you, was anything but good. The multitudes and the disciples that day on the side of the mountain, let me tell you, their circumstances of life were depressing. They were dire. They were discouraging. They were bad. And yet Jesus declared, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake. Another author writes, the world can win its joys 
and the world can equally well lose its toys. A change in fortune, a collapse in health, the failure of a plan, the disappointment of an ambition, even a change in the weather can take the fickle joy that they give. But the Christian has the serene and untouchable joy which comes from walking forever in the company and in the presence of Jesus Christ. The greatness of the Beatitudes is that they are triumphant shouts of bliss for a permanent joy that nothing in the world can ever take away. Do your circumstances stink right now in your life? If you had the magical wand to change your circumstances... Would you? Because your circumstances are not what you wished for. In fact, if you were to characterize your circumstances right now, you would say, they stink, my life is awful, my, I wish I could just run from them. But be encouraged. Jesus is telling you that a blessed life is independent of your circumstances. But the opposite is equally true. Just because your life is going good right now, doesn't necessarily mean you're living a, quote, blessed life. A life that is approved by God. As one other writer says, to be blessed is not a superficial feeling of well-being based on circumstances, but a deep supernatural experience of contentedness based on the fact that one's life is right with God. Which brings us to our second statement of a blessed life from a kingdom perspective, and that is a blessed life is related to a right relationship with God. You see, being blessed by God is not something that you or I can earn. It's not something that you can achieve. In fact, we simply do not have the resources at our disposal or even within us to generate a spiritual condition that makes us acceptable to a holy God. God gives blessedness as a gift. He shows favor to people who have no right to it whatsoever. It is simply an expression of God's grace on those who have a right relationship with Him through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. This means that the Beatitudes that we read here in Matthew 5 are practically meaningless to the person who has never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. But for those who know Jesus as their Savior, for those who submit to Him as their King, they have the promise here of a blessed life. Think of the Beatitudes in this way. You might think of them as a gospel litmus test. They show you how much or how little your faith is in the grace of the gospel. In the Beatitudes, it's as if Jesus says, if you want to know that you have come to believe the gospel that I've been preaching, then look for these qualities in your life. At the same time, living out these beatitudes, these eight qualities, is impossible outside of a right relationship with God. You see, the beatitudes... When Jesus spoke these, when he declared them, in other words, when he pronounced them 
on his true followers, the disciples that came to him, not the, the crowds that surrounded him. The Beatitudes presuppose that, that you have turned from your sins and from your own self-righteousness to trust in Jesus as the one who lived the life that you could never live and died the death that you deserve to die and now gives you the benefit of that life and death as a free gift. And if you stand on the sure foundation of that grace, oh my, Jesus saying, then you can live like a child of the king. And you have the blessing of the king. And in that sense, the Beatitudes here are a profile of true followers of Jesus Christ. These eight qualities give us a picture of what a true Christian, a true believer, what we would term here at Glenwood as a true follower looks like. These eight qualities in the Beatitudes will begin to characterize sinners who encounter God's grace in Jesus Christ. Not perfectly, but progressively. You see, believers who encounter Jesus Christ, sinners who encounter the grace of Jesus Christ, they are people, as we will see next Sunday, who are poor in spirit, who mourn in meek, who hunger and thirst for a righteousness not their own, who exude mercy and purity of heart, who make peace, who experience persecution for Jesus' sake. And Jesus says, it's these people who are blessed. It's not the people that our culture says. And then a third statement is this. A blessed life is meant to be a present yet future reality. Perhaps you noticed it in our reading of the Beatitudes when Randy read it and when we read it again that most of the promises of blessing in the Beatitudes are in the future tense. Such as, they shall be comforted or they shall inherit the earth. However, the promise for theirs is the kingdom of heaven is given in the present tense and it is stated twice, in the very first beatitude and in the last beatitude. And all the other beatitudes are sandwiched in between or in the future tense. But the first and the last are in the present tense. So while the kingdom of God is not yet fully finalized, it is here already. Which means a blessed life is a present reality, not just something in the future. This is referred to as the already, not yet theme of the kingdom of God. Already, not yet. In other words, the kingdom of God, it is present now. And the kingdom blessings are a present reality, but not to the extent they will be when Jesus ushers in the age to come. Only then will God's people experience the, the full realization of kingdom blessings. And yet, and yet, and yet, we can enjoy foretaste of those blessings here and now. But this also means, this also means, we are to live with a kingdom mindset now. And that's the whole point of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which these Beatitudes begin. 
The Beatitudes are simply the beginning of a much longer sermon that covers Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. You see, we must demonstrate by our very lives that the kingdom of God is already a vital reality within reach of all who trust the king and submit their lives to the king. This means changing how we think, how we look at the world around us, and, and how we live in the here and now. As Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, because you are what you are, and because the future is what it is, this is how you should live. You say, how should I live? What Jesus says in the Beatitudes. Now, with all this in mind, and this was all foundational, it was introduction to get us to this point. With all this in mind now, I draw your attention to the first two verses of Matthew chapter 5. Notice what it says in verses 1 and 2. This is in Matthew's gospel, so Matthew is the author here, and Matthew is telling us. He's looking back at history, and he's writing about it through the inspiration of God. And he says, And seeing the multitudes... He, that is Jesus, went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Now what we have here, in these first two verses, is a mixed audience listening to Jesus teach on a mountainside. By the way, this is why it is often called the Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus went up on a mountain. That particular mountain is not the point. Jesus sat, if you're wondering why he sat to teach, well, because in that day and age, that's how rabbis, that was the traditional way rabbis or teachers would teach. And so both the multitudes of people and his disciples, Jesus' disciples, were present on the mountainside when Jesus began teaching these beatitudes. You might think of it as two concentric circles. You have the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, and then you have the outer circle of the multitudes. And it says the, the, the disciples came to him. They came to Jesus because they were, they were followers of Jesus. In other words, they believed Jesus when he preached just one chapter earlier, when Jesus started his public ministry, his message, you know what his message was? It was rather short. It was rather simple. It was one sentence. His sermon consisted of this. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, repent. And he tells us why. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that was his message that began, that launched his ministry. And these disciples here, they believed that. They responded to that. They did repent. And then they followed Jesus when Jesus came to them, when he saw them, and he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And you know what they did? They dropped everything to follow Jesus. It was radical. But they believed. They repented. And they gave up what the world had to offer in order to follow after what Jesus had to offer. Who do you think won? Oh, from the culture's point of view, the disciples did not win because in the end, all of them were martyred. 
But that's such a short-term view of the disciples. Because now, oh my, now, we will meet them in glory. And so the disciples, they're the true followers of Jesus, and they came to Jesus. But what about the multitudes? Well, the multitudes listened to Jesus as well because they were fans of Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 tells us, Now Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. And then his, listen to this, it says his fame. Jesus' fame went out all Syria. As you might imagine, news of Jesus' miracles spread like wildfire. And huge crowds flocked after Jesus in search of the buzz that was surrounding Jesus. They wanted to see, hey, what's going on? Maybe I can get in on the action of what Jesus has to offer. Maybe he'll heal me. Maybe he'll do something for me. And it was precisely at this moment that Jesus made his way up the mountainside and began teaching. And when Jesus finished his sermon... Oh my, these fans, these multitudes, they were utterly amazed at what he had to say. In fact, you go to the very end of the sermon in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, it says, And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. In other words, Jesus teaching here in the Beatitudes and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, let me tell you, it was shocking. It was authoritative because what? Jesus is God. And these are the very words of God. And it was designed to call people to a radical life change, an upside-down living in the kingdom of God. Here's the point. Here's the point. See the Beatitudes, for what they are. You say, what are they? Look at this in your notes on the screen. The Beatitudes are words of celebration for followers of Jesus. And they are also words of invitation for fans of Jesus. There's no doubt both fans and followers of Jesus wanted to hear something of what Jesus had to say that day on the mountainside. And let me tell you, there is no doubt Jesus had something to say to all of them. Just as Jesus has something to say to every one of us here this morning. You might think of the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount here, of what we would call a double-barreled sermon. Jesus offered words of celebration to his true followers, and he offered words of invitation to his fans. The Beatitudes are words of celebration for followers of Jesus because, after all, he's telling them what? Speaking to the inner circle of disciples, his true followers, he's telling them, you are blessed. You're blessed. True followers... They're the ones that have the approval of God, the favor of God. They have God's blessing, and that blessing is a present yet future reality. And so no matter what your circumstances may be, celebrate and rejoice and give thanks. You know King Jesus, amen? 
You've trusted in His saving grace. You've been forgiven of your sins. And you've been granted the gift of eternal life. You have His kingdom power at work within you now. And you will inherit the kingdom of God with all of its infinite blessings. You are blessed. That is something to celebrate. And so Jesus is offering these true disciples who left everything, and He's reaffirming to them now, blessed are you, blessed, blessed. No, not according to the culture's view, but according to my kingdom perspective. But this is not yet true with fans of Jesus. The multitudes who are there just for the buzz, So the Beatitudes are words of invitation to them. Perhaps even to you this morning. Right now, you, like them, do not have the approval or the favor of God. For you are still dead in your sins. And God will not and cannot bless a life of sin. And so the blessings of the kingdom are not yours to claim. But the good news, oh, and it's wonderful news, folks. It is grand news. Is that the Beatitudes now come to you as they did in that day as an invitation to respond to God's saving grace in Jesus Christ. An invitation to respond to Jesus' message of repentance and salvation. And then, and only then, can you be assured of God's blessing in your life as well. And so as we come to a close, we have to ask ourselves one final question. Where are you? Where are you as Jesus begins to teach his upside-down views of a blessed life in the Beatitudes? As you look within your own heart, are are you simply a fan of Jesus standing in the outer crowd? My prayer for you is that you will come for the rest of this series. You will hear the Beatitudes. And you will hear what Jesus has to say in the Beatitudes in that by the moving of God in your life through His Spirit, you will respond to Jesus' invitation to a blessed life. Because this blessed life far exceeds whatever you think this world might offer you. Or perhaps, I know most of you, are you a follower of Jesus, listening to His every word? And my prayer for you is that you will also come for the rest of this series and you will be challenged, you will be confronted, but most of all, you will be motivated to live out the Beatitudes knowing that you have a blessed life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you. And we thank you for sending your son. We thank you for Jesus intervening in the world history, intervening into our lives, intervening with his love and his grace and his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection. Lord, that he intervened to provide a way for us to live a blessed life in your kingdom. 
And so, Lord, give us eyes to see that what you have to offer in the Beatitudes far exceeds what this culture of ours wants to offer. Lord, help us who are already followers of Jesus Christ to, to evaluate our lives in light of these eight qualities in the Beatitudes and to see if we're not living them out. Not to gain your approval or to earn your approval, for we are already approved by you. We stand righteous because we have the righteousness of Christ. Lord, for those who are curious, they're part of the crowd, they're, they're fans, I pray that you would move in their heart. You would open their eyes to see their own sinfulness and the need of Jesus' righteousness to cover them so that they can begin to be blessed and have your favor on their lives. And so, Lord, do a work even now. As Zach sings, help us to respond in the appropriate manner as you see fit.